0: Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in, the bo- <clears throat> in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, fall- and immediately on the Sabbath <clears throat> excuse me, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, "'Everyone is looking for you.' He said to them, let us, go out, "'Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out.' And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, <clears throat> and kneeling said to him if, you, "'If you will, you can make me clean.' and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming in, coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, like Matt said, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy. And an honor to be with you this morning. It's always wonderful to gather with the people of God, uh, to worship God, to sit under his word together, to open his word and explore what God might have for us this morning. It's a huge honor. It's wonderful to see you all this morning. I've had a few people come up to me recently, just kind of unprompted, and say to me just how difficult things have been. Not just here at Sojourn. Um, this is just over the past few weeks, my wife's uncle, my brother, uh, a friend of mine from college, uh, just, I've had just a number of people talk just unprompted about how hard things are right now. The COVID pandemic that we're still in the middle of has provided, of course, a significant amount of disruption to life as we know it, but the difficulty that we're experiencing in a real way started happening even before covid The public square, of course, both politically and otherwise, has become increasingly polarized. Anger and discontentment seem to be at all-time highs. The economic system here in the U.S. and in the West has been growing more tumultuous. Work rhythms and the nature of work itself um, are going through a significant shift. We're currently in the middle of what some economists are describing as the great resignation as people are resigning from their jobs in droves in search of more fulfilling work. We're in the midst of a global supply chain shortages, leading to things like car companies sitting on billions of dollars of inventory because they're missing chips to finish the cars that they've built. Costco didn't have Uncrustables yesterday for my daughters. I mean, <laughs> this is a big deal. I was listening to a fascinating interview the other day by a a, a man named Mark Sayers. You may have heard his name. He's an Australian pastor in Melbourne, Australia, uh, who's also a thinker. He's written several books. He's probably my favorite cultural commentator uh, who's talking about the culture in the West today. And he was talking about what's going on in the world today, and he suggested that perhaps the biggest change that's happening in the world right now is the shift from a complicated world to a complex world. This is a bit of a longer introduction than normal, but I'm doing this intentionally. Here's how Mark Sayers put it. In a complicated system, problems come at us in a relatively linear fashion. And you tackle them one at a time in a logical progression. So a problem presents itself, you solve it, and you move on to the next problem. Picture industrial progress. If you own a factory and you're trying to drive down the cost of the product that you're making, you make several changes at your factory, You install a new machine or two, you establish different roles and responsibilities for your management, and voila, the cost has gone down. In a complex world, on the other hand, things aren't linear like that. There's many things happening all at once that kind of affect each other in different and often unpredictable ways. Think of the supply chain shortage, you can think of the auto industry, and and going to purchase a car and being surprised that all of a sudden you're having to think about where microchips are sourced and what materials go into the microchips of the car that you're seeking to buy. Or picture that same factory and enter a whole host of other variables. That, That factory owner notices that a portion of the workforce that holds a particular political view demands a meeting with management to hear out and change certain employment practices. At the same time, a former employee airs out a grievance on social media and you get a phone call from corporate about it. At the same time, supply chain shortages delay the delivery of the last machine upgrade that you've already paid for, and the price of two of the raw materials that you use to make your product keep going up and down by 30 to 50% every four to six weeks. All of a sudden, this 50-something-year-old factory owner is dealing with a whole host of things that he's never had to deal with before, and that he never thought that he'd have to deal with. The more complex world that we live in really comes from the world being a much more connected world. Picture a dinner party. Mark Sayers gives this illustration. Picture a dinner party where you invite 10 people over for dinner. There may be complicated things that arise. Someone might bring up an uncomfortable topic of conversation, or someone might have gone through some sort of painful loss in their family, or someone might spill something on themselves. Some sort of complicated situation will arise that you have to solve. Now picture if you invited 5,000 randomly picked people from all over the world to a dinner party. That is a much more complex reality and that's kind of like the reality in which we are living today probably for the first time in human history. For us as a church we have 175 members and each of us are constantly bombarded not just with the current stage of life of our family and the nature of the relationships in our immediate communities, like the church and our workplace and our neighborhood, but we've also got hundreds and sometimes thousands of online connections. We've got new news sources that seem to be popping up with each passing day. We've got podcasts coming out that we have to listen to and catch up to. We have distant acquaintances reaching out to us, marketing experts grasping for every moment of our waking thought life. And when you bring us all together in one place and try to explore life together with all of these complex, interrelated stimuli that are speaking into our lives, things get increasingly complex. We are in an increasingly connected world, an increasingly global world, and it's important to note that this connection and this globalization is not necessarily a bad thing. There's many benefits that come from increasing connection. Houston is a first-hand experience of the wonders and gifts of diversity that is increasing in a global, increasingly global age. There's so many promising and wonderful things about how connected we are, the kinds of problems that we can face together, the benefits that we enjoy today that weren't, weren't even possible to consider uh, uh, even a century ago. But this also brings with it significant complexity. We're closer to everything in the world, including all of the world's problems problems. And even as we are increasingly connected to everything out there, we're sometimes increasingly isolated from the people we're closest to on our very street. Disruption, in other words, is the new environment in which we live. Complexity and disruption. People have been talking about returning to normal for some time now. But the truth is that what we've been used to for some time, in the words of Mark Sayers, is actually abnormal. There was this period during the first couple of decades of the 2000s, the new millennium, during which the cultural belief was that the world was going to move towards this kind of smooth, convenient, high-performing, high-efficiency world, that things were stabilizing and that we were going to enjoy this stability and prosperity. Now, though, we're actually returning to what the world has kind of always been like. Geopolitical turmoil, pandemics, economic upheavals. This is actually normal. We've bought into this myth that we can live our best lives now and that we can live our lives without disruption. But this is just not how the world works. The transition towards disruption and destabilization is actually a return to normal rather than a departure from it. Think about US history itself, go back to the 1800s, the turn, of the, or the turn of the 19th century, brand new nation, 25 years old, almost 25 years old. Uh, there's incredibly tense political disputes. You think politics are bad today? Read some of the letters that were written in journals in the early 1800s. Have you ever seen Hamilton? There's rising unrest with slavery and, and trade processes and the expansion of the United States. Eventually, we come to the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves, which in many ways rends culture in a new, uh, a new and uh, important way, but also in terms of increased complexity. And then you have this transition to this promising turn of the 20th century. The beginning of the 1900s, there's this age of some sort of political stability, and then World War I takes off. And then you have the, the Spanish flu pandemic. And then you have the Great Depression. Then you get to World War II, then you have a season of prosperity that then gets interrupted again by this worldwide trade crisis, the oil crisis. Then you have the age of hippies and societal moral and ethical turnover. You have the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have Vietnam. And then you come to the new millennium and think, okay, it's the 2000s, it's gonna turn around and then you hit 9-11. Then you have the real estate crash, then you have more political turmoil and then you have things like power grids failing and a pandemic. And now, in addition to things being normal, we have all of these phenomena which historically have in many ways been geographically or demographically isolated that are now in front of us all the time in an increasingly complex world. There's this myth that we've been trending towards stability that history simply tells us doesn't happen. And as a result, right now, we're kind of in an in-between moment. The most recent age of stability has, in many ways, come to an end. We still enjoy some of that. I should say we still enjoy a lot of that, but there's other ways in which it's clear that that is coming to an end. And we're kind of waiting to see what comes next. And in in this moment, we might be in this kind of moment of overlap between this age and what's coming for some time. Usually this takes some time. If you think about the fall of Rome, um, it didn't, it's not like Rome was sacked by the pagans on Monday, and then Thursday was the beginning of the Dark Ages. This tr- these kinds of societal transitions take time. But actually, that's, there's an example from that moment in history, the fall of Rome, that is significant for us as a church that actually makes the point that Mark Sayers is making today. You guys are familiar with a man named Saint Augustine, Augustine, as we call him. He's a, a, a Christian theologian, big in the fourth and fifth centuries. Um, and he's, this, he's an African bishop in the Catholic church. And this happens right at the time when Rome has become Christian. About 80 years before, that, before Augustine, Rome becomes Christian. Constantine is saved. All these droves of people flock into Christian churches. And it looks like the expansion of the church is a really exciting thing. But then Rome starts to decline very rapidly. And people start leaving the church in droves the Roman sanatorial class starts writing things that are very scathing against the church in the public sphere saying, see, this is what happens when we abandon our gods for this Christianity thing. Our, the the, 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 the empire is gonna fall. And so all of these Christians from, the, from Europe are writing to Augustine saying, Augustine, help us here, because he was a well-known thinker. And in response, he writes The City of God, which is a book, it's a tome, if you may have heard the name, but in in it, he basically identifies the difference between the city of God and the city of man, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And they're asking Augustine, what are you gonna say? How can we fix and turn things around in Rome? And Augustine says, "You, you probably can't, but it doesn't matter. Kingdoms may rise and fall, but Christ is gonna sit on his throne anyway. Things are getting increasingly complex. Things are very difficult. People are sounding the alarm, but don't fret. Christ is on his throne. The temptation in times of crisis like this is to think in binary black and white terms. You've probably heard many of them these days. That either things are trending towards stability and in a good direction, or it's the apocalypse. Everything's falling apart. You might think of the story of David, which Adam talked about last week. which which, which highlights the fact that these binary terms simply aren't applicable to the real world. So the story of David, you might know King David, he's this kind of glorified figure in Israelite history. He's he's an amazing, his reign was an amazing reign, but the story of David is actually really complex. He's anointed king, and then as the anointed king, King Saul, who's the king before him, tries to kill him. The most powerful man in the world tries to kill David. He's fleeing for his life. Then finally, Saul dies, and so everyone's thinking, okay, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. But then Saul's sons start causing problems. And so David actually has to mount this kind of guerrilla warfare attempt to seize power in Israel before he comes to the throne. And his reign is one of complexity. Where things are good and things are bad, and then David himself gets himself into trouble a couple of times. But in the middle of this story, Think about David's wonderful devotional life. We have like half the Psalter is written by King David in times of distress and duress as he is navigating the complexities of life in the real world. The Psalms are raw, they're emotional, and they're real. The, the, his devotional life is at the very heart of his leadership and engagement with the world. The reality is that the real world is not controllable by us. Nature is not controllable. Complexity of the world is not something that we can seize the reins of as human beings and take control of and lead the world into a better place invitation the invitation from God in moments like this when the most powerful man in the world is trying to kill us when things are not as simple and prosperous as we think that they should be the invitation is to dependence to acknowledge that we're not as powerful as we like to think we are to let go, to look to God, to depend on what only God can do, because that is where renewal begins. That's where the people of God become ready for the work of God in our midst. The world around us has brought us into this myth that nature is is controllable, that that the goal of our lives should be to be as free from disruption as possible. And when you're in control, things feel predictable and that's wonderful, but that's not reality. We can only live so long in that illusion, that fantasy really, before nature gives us a reality check. Before we try to buy a car and realize that it's gonna be nine months maybe before we get it. Pandemic brings with it mask and vaccine mandates that reveal, that, that push on our individual freedoms. The world around us, maybe even in our own church seems to have forgotten how to use words that diagnosis that pushes back on your youthful invincibility, the child who develops differently than expected, this age of command and control that we've grown accustomed to in our culture here in the US is seeming very much to be in the rear view mirror at the moment. And while there are real sources of pain and there are things that are clearly not good that are going on in the world, the thing is, as Christians, as the church, when we consider this loss of our sense of control over the world around us, this is not bad news. Instead, this is very much a wilderness experience inviting us to do what the wilderness does to turn to God independence in a deeper way than we ever have before. When we think about our culture, about post post postmodern thought and the Western view that being free from disruption is the goal of life on earth and that it's it's attainable for us simply by figuring out the right thought process, the right political system, the right technology to control the world around us and bring it into submission under our desires, preserve our individual freedoms, we see that this is a message that leads us away from reliance and dependence on God towards self-reliance and independence. And while I'm not opposed at all, don't mishear me, I'm not opposed to, right thought processes to good politics or to individual freedom. I think that we're getting a glimpse right now of just how shaky the foundation is beneath the view that these things are things that we can achieve ourselves. And as Christians, we must know that this is the message of the world around us. You can do it. You don't need anyone else. Having people around you is nice, absolutely. So by all means, enter into all kinds of relationships. But remember that ultimately, it's you against the world and you've got this it's important to step back every now and then to examine where the culture around us has informed our view of the good life and what it looks like to get there more than the scriptures the word of god and that's why every week we go to the scriptures together as a church when we come to the scriptures we see that the message of christianity which centers on the person and work of jesus christ presents us with a very different solution than the world around presents us with the renewal the peace the prosperity that we so long for is a god placed desire but it can only come from one place, from without. It must come from heaven, and that is central to what we see here this morning in our passage in Mark chapter one. And if you've noticed the time, that's an unusually long introduction to the sermon for today. And this is gonna be a bit of an unusual sermon for me, I think, but as we turn to our passage You may have noticed that as Matt read, it's a bit of a longer passage. There's a lot that happens in these 30 verses. And don't worry, we're not gonna go line by line through every verse of this passage. You don't need to text your lunch plans. This is the fourth sermon in a series through the Gospel of Mark, we're still in chapter one, which covers the prelude to and beginnings of the ministry of Jesus during his life on earth. And up until now, we have been in the prelude, so to speak. The, the, the lead up, and there's been a lot packed in the first 15 verses that we've seen before. We've looked at John the Baptist, the way maker for Jesus. We looked at Jesus' baptism and its significance. Last week, we went to the wilderness with Jesus to watch his testing. And today, that was kind of prelude, and today we see the first actions that Jesus takes in his ministry. The first ways that he demonstrates his messianic sonship in the world. The reason we chose to take such a long passage, which the ESV divides into five subsections, is so that we could look at these beginning actions of Jesus as Mark gives us all together. Because as we will see, they give us in many ways an overview of what is to come. Altogether, they show us, I think, some key themes of God's work in the world in a way that gets to the very heart of the culture of the ancient world, in a way that echoes forward to the heart of our culture even today. Give a quick overview of the passage before I make some observations. Just before this, like I said, Jesus has come out of testing in the wilderness and he has declared the gospel message that he came to preach. And then in our passage, Jesus first calls the disciples, these first four fishermen, to leave their nets and follow him. In the second section, Jesus goes straight to the synagogue in Capernaum to teach and he confronts a demon. From there, in the third section, he goes to Simon and Andrew's house and heals Simon's wife's mother and then many others as the whole town starts bringing those who are sick and afflicted by demons. And then he withdraws from all the people to a desolate place to pray before continuing to teach and then finally he cleanses a leper. So that's the story, the the passage that we're going to look at this morning. There's a lot that happens and I'd simply like to make a series of observations. I've got five of them which we'll move through relatively quickly as we look into this passage to see what God might be saying to us together this morning. And so to jump right in, it might be helpful for you to have scriptures open in front of you, whether in your pew Bible in front of you or on your device, because I won't read each section as I normally do. But the first observation I'd like to make is this. Jesus begins his public ministry in an interesting way. Jesus, as we know already from Mark, is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God himself who has existed from all eternity and he's taken on flesh in what's called the incarnation. He's taken on a human form in order to secure the salvation of the world. So far, Jesus has been announced by John the Baptist as the one who's coming to baptize with fire. In his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and a voice speaks audibly from heaven to him. And he has just gone toe to toe with Satan himself in the wilderness. And so we're ready for him to do some pretty incredible things. And while, of course, he does them eventually, this initial approach seems interesting. The very first act of the Son of God who has come into the world is to approach four ordinary fishermen in the middle of their workday and invite them to follow him. He's here in Galilee, which we saw a couple of weeks ago as this kind of northern backwater region, not particularly known for religious devotion. And of all the people in Galilee, Jesus goes to these remarkably ordinary people. While they would have been faithful Jews, they wouldn't have been highly educated or well-known men in their community. Which at first glance may seem like an interesting way for the Son of God himself to begin his public ministry. But what Jesus is doing here, I think, is of critical importance. Right here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, This establishes the central purpose of Jesus's earthly ministry in a way that looks forward really to the conclusion of the gospel narratives when Jesus will send his disciples out to do just this, to gather people together. Jesus has come to begin the work of gathering God's people to himself once again. He calls these disciples to himself and at the end of his ministry he will commission them to continue this work of gathering which he describes as fishing for men. And as you see, uh, the fact that these followers will become fishers of men is, of course, wordplay in the immediate context. They're fishermen, and Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, but that phrase is actually deeper than simply wordplay. In the Old Testament prophets, the fisher of men image is a key image of what God has told his people that he's coming to do. And it's actually something of an ominous term. It's a term that, that, refers to the coming judgment of God. There's a number of references, but just for one example, Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, God says, behold, I'm sending for many fishers, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. So when Jesus says, I'm gonna make you become fishers of men, he's pointing back to the prophets who told that God was gonna come send fishermen for this divisive mission of fishing out people and leaving the rest for hunters. Their function, in other words, will be to serve as earnest witnesses to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of God and the necessity of people to turn back to God in radical repentance because the judgment of God is coming. And the fishing image is a pretty active image In some of the other Old Testament passages, God uses the phrase, I will place hooks in your mouths. This makes a lot of sense in what Jesus encounters in his ministry and what his disciples will encounter as well. People aren't looking for God. People aren't seeking after God. God needs to come to them and yank them and hook them in the mouth to draw them to himself. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is God himself come from heaven to catch his people out of their wandering and then make them into fishermen themselves so that they can be sent out to go and do the same. And in the way the disciples respond, we kind of see this image getting, uh, getting applied in the immediate context. When Jesus approaches, uh, the disciples and calls them to follow him, it's almost like they're grabbed by a hook right away. They're drug behind, you know, there's, there's no pause, no hesitation. Immediately they followed him. The fish, when caught by a hook, doesn't just pause and think, am I gonna swim towards that boat? They get yanked. And that's kind of the image that we see in these first disciples. They don't hear the call to follow and then consider for a time and then come to Jesus. They're caught by the great fisherman and they come after him immediately. And so while Jesus starts his public ministry in this interesting way, which at first may look a bit confusing, we see that this image is a rich image that it's at the very heart of the gospel. Gathering these ordinary people and preparing them to be fishermen describes what is perhaps God's primary activity in the world, that of gathering his people to himself. When Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, God sacrifices an animal to cover their guilt and shame, promising the redemption of humanity. When God creates a new people, Israel, through whom he would bless all families of the earth, God says to this people, Israel, through Moses, you will be my people and I will be your God. And here, rather than leaving people up to the task of working their way up to him and redeeming themselves, God himself has come as the great fisherman to gather his people to himself. This is where Jesus begins and it remains, as we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, the central focus of his ministry. Observation number two. From this interesting beginning to his public ministry, Jesus then gets to work. When we come with Jesus and his brand new disciples to the synagogue at Capernaum, we're getting ready to see some spectacular miracles. But again, as we look at how Jesus does even these miracles, it it almost seems, I wanna be careful here, but it almost seems like he is hesitant. In other words, Jesus doesn't kick in the door and hit the miracles head on. He kind of slides into working these miracles uh, uh, sideways by way of circumstance. You might think that this one who has all the power in the universe at his disposal would be a bit more upfront with his vivid demonstrations of power, but he's not, which is interesting. Let me, tell, let me show you what I mean. So for first, when he comes with his first disciples, he goes to the synagogue, and why? He goes to teach. Synagogues would have been places that look kind of like churches, but in the ancient world, they would have been somewhat free-flowing in terms of information. There was an overseer for each synagogue, but that didn't mean that he was necessarily the spiritual authority in the room. He merely took care of the building and the programs and so forth. Often ordinary lay people would read scripture and would speak concerning the scriptures. Traveling rabbis and other Jewish teachers teachers, excuse me, were common. Particularly well known at this time was a group of people that were introduced to in our passage in verse 23 as scribes. These were people who were highly educated, they were highly respected, teachers and interpreters of God's word. The front row in the synagogues was usually reserved for scribes and their authority was such that if a scribe walked into a synagogue, everyone would stand up in respect until he found his seat before sitting down again. When a scribe spoke, they spoke on the authority of this tradition of rabbis that had been handed down to them and they would have been sent to help people understand the latest development in theology and practice of Judaism and of the Old Testament law. So when Jesus comes into the synagogue, he's not a scribe, but he steps right in in a way that would have been normal to the congregation. Here's a traveling teacher, so let's hear what he has to say. But when he opens his mouth, what he says is astonishing. And Mark doesn't tell us the content of what he said, because, and that's partly because he's already summarized Jesus' teaching above in verse 15. But for Mark, the, the writer of this gospel, the person of Jesus is more important than the subject of his teaching. His authority, was something they had never experienced before. The scribes had some authority, helping the people to guide their debates and theoretical reflection on the things of God. But when Jesus opens his mouth, his authority was so clear that the scribes are wholly discounted. Verse 22, Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You hear Mark just basically, the scribes have no authority compared to Jesus. Jesus was not interested like the scribes in debate or theoretical reflection. Rather than appeals for intellectual pursuit, Jesus made absolute demands on their lives. And they were astonished. The word translated astonished here carries actually something of a negative connotation. It could also be translated disturbed. They were disturbed at what Jesus was saying and how he was saying it. And this is, again, reminiscent of the idea of fishing. It's clear that while they see his authority, they don't know who he is, but there's one here who knows exactly who he is. Verse 23, Jesus is teaching, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So we see the demon sees Jesus for who he is and he immediately engages him with a defensive phrase. What have you to do with us? What have you to do with me? That's a term most commonly used in battlefield situations where if you have two armies getting ready to fight a battle, there's the parlay committees that come out and the, the, the person who's being attacked steps out with a parlay and says, what have you to do with us? It's, like a, it's, an, it's an antagonist. It's an enmity. It's a, it's a phrase of enmity. The demon then says Jesus's name and identity, which would have been also an attempted power play. Knowing and calling out someone's name and identity was commonly held to be a way to gain mastery or control over a person. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He simply commands the demon to be silent, the unclean spirit, unclean spirit, demon, same thing. Commands the demon to be silent and to come out, and he does. There's no formula, there's no spell or incantation as the people back then would have been accustomed to in seeing. There were various exorcists who would travel around and even among the priests. But not not with Jesus. He simply speaks words and the demon obeys. So at first, the people were astonished at his teaching. And then when he commands the demon to come out of the man, they're even further amazed. Here's a man who doesn't teach just with a new kind of authority they had never heard, but he even commands the obedience of unclean spirits. And it's clear that casting out this demon is the focus of this particular event, but to zoom back out for just a minute, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't seem to be looking for it. He's certainly not surprised by the disruption. He's certainly willing to address, and he does so quickly, this disruption, but he doesn't kick down the door to the synagogue and say, okay, where's the demon? Instead, he simply enters the synagogue and begins preaching about the kingdom of God. As a quick side note, there's a lot of people who get really fascinated with spiritual warfare. There's people who have entire ministries dedicated to jumping in and crashing down the house of demons. That's just not what we see modeled in the ministry of Jesus. We see a clear awareness and seriousness and gravity to engaging with spiritual warfare. But that should never be the focus, the sole focus, the primary focus of our ministry. Here, Jesus is clearly set up as the one who has come to do battle against Satan and his host. And what is his method? He simply enters and begins preaching about the kingdom of God. So still in this same observation about Jesus seemingly sliding into these miracles, look at what comes next. People start talking about him immediately, and his fame begins to spread throughout Galilee. But then from the synagogue in Capernaum, he and the disciples go to the house of Simon and Andrew to have dinner. If you're familiar with the Bible, Jesus hasn't yet renamed him, but Simon here is the apostle Peter. So we come to Simon Peter's house where his wife's mother is ill. And again, Jesus doesn't kick the door in looking for the sick person. His disciples are the ones who come to him to tell him about Simon Peter's sick mother-in-law. I love the details of this story, um, of this healing and its unpretentiousness. This is Jesus's first healing in the gospel of Mark and it's a quiet event. Jesus' name isn't even used in these few verses. He's not looking for renown. There's just a few people present. He's merely showing compassion and grace to a woman in need. And the first recipient of Jesus' healing is this old woman who experiences full restoration to health. She's restored such that immediately she jumps to action to serve them, presumably beginning to prepare the evening meal. And as a side note here, This verse has often been used and cited in support of relegating women to serving capacities only in inappropriate ways. Here, it clearly does not communicate the idea of subservience or inferiority. The word for wait on, she came to wait on Jesus and the disciples is the same word used just before our passage to describe the ministry of angels attending Jesus during his temptation. It's also the word Jesus uses for himself when he says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Later in the Bible, it's the same word you translated deacon. That's, a, that's the Greek word deacon. She was deaconing them, deaconizing for them. In other words, far from being a detail in this story relegating women, we are given here the first example of the proper responsive one who has been touched by Jesus' healing hand, serving God's people. So the key detail in the story that I want to point out, though, is its unpretentiousness. Jesus doesn't come in looking to make a name for himself as a miracle healer. Even later on after sundown when Jesus, verse 34, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, Jesus is again responding to people coming to him for this purpose rather than seeking it out for himself. So in both these stories, when you look at what Jesus is initiating himself, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue about the kingdom of God and the ingathering of God's people And then he heads to the home of one of his gathered disciples to share a meal with the fellowship of believers. Those are the things that Jesus initiates, teaching and fellowship. He's certainly ready to engage with mercy and with power. The miracles certainly do testify to Jesus's identity as the Messiah sent from God to come to seek and to save the lost. Please do not hear me devaluing the miracles of Jesus in the least. I simply want to observe for us that it seems as though Jesus's attention is not on the things that everyone else's attention is on. The miracles and the power. Which brings me to the third observation. I'm gonna move a bit more quickly now. Jesus is not here primarily to be a miracle worker. As we read on, we see that the next day, Jesus rises very early and leaves town getting away from the crowds, and he goes out to a desolate place to pray. When Jesus' disciples can't find him, they come searching for him saying, Jesus, where have you been? There's all these people that have been looking for you. You did the miracles and they noticed. So what are you doing? In other places in the Bible, seeking Jesus is sometimes referred to as an important and very good thing. But in Mark, whenever you see something referred to as someone searching for Jesus or seeking out Jesus, it's always negative. It's used to describe those who are seeking after Jesus to argue with him or to discredit him. It's used to describe those who search for him in order to kill him. Searching for Jesus in the gospel of Mark always comes with an agenda of some kind. And here is no exception. Peter and the disciples have in their minds what Jesus should be doing, and they think things are going well, the ministry is going as it should, all these crowds are coming, Jesus, why are you missing this? Jesus, however, responds with a word of correction. He's not here to be a miracle worker. He's here to preach the kingdom of God. He's looking for a response in his hearers, and this is not the response he's looking for. Jesus had come to preach repentance and the nearness of the kingdom, but these crowds are thinking only of relief from pain and affliction. All he has received thus far is amazement with his spectacular healing power and authority over demons he does extend compassion and grace to those who come to him. But this is not his primary purpose. Perhaps this is why he goes back to the wilderness, a place of clarity. Jesus has departed from the place of plenty and has come to the wilderness to pray. In this whirlwind of activity, he seeks a still point in prayer with his heavenly father. In the gospel of Mark, there's three places where Jesus prays. Here at the beginning where his ministry is being defined. In the middle, just after he finishes feeding the 5,000, and at the end, near the conclusion, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his betrayal. Each moment is a critical moment in Jesus' ministry. Each of those moments is an opportunity for him to take the easy way out rather than the way of suffering and death. Here is no exception. Jesus' miracles are gaining him great power and acclaim. Jesus could have seized that moment and become a star in the eyes of those who are coming to him for his healing power, for his authoritative demon deliverance, but that's not his purpose. And the fishermen miss it. They look at the crowds and they think, man, this is working. They come to Jesus and talk to him as though he's silly for not understanding this detail. How familiar does this sound? Jesus. You must not be seeing what is happening. This is amazing. Jesus, why are you taking this away from me? Gosh, that's what I really need. We get distracted often by what other people want, by fame and acclaim, by what we think is important, but not Jesus. Jesus knows why he's here. Verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. I'm not here to get rich. I'm not here to be well thought of as a a miracle worker. I'm here to preach the nearness of the kingdom. So while Jesus is certainly here to do war against Satan and against sickness and death, he has a larger purpose in mind. He's not here to impress people. He's here to save people by calling them to faith in himself. Which brings me to the fourth observation. When we come to the leper, we see, I think, Jesus's purpose in salvation. We see his purpose, which is to trade places. Here's what I mean. While he's still in a desolate place, a leper comes out to him to ask him to make him clean. If the five sections of our passage were a piece of music, this would in many ways be the crescendo. This is not to minimize, of course, I feel like I need to say this, this isn't to minimize all the healing and casting out of demons that Jesus has done before, but leprosy had a special place in first century Jewish culture. When a leper comes into the story, this is a big one. Leprosy is highly contagious. It was a physically ravaging skin disease that came along also with religious impurity and ostracization from all of society. It wasn't just a disease, it was a sentence. In the Old Testament law, two chapters of Leviticus deal with what to do with lepers. Lepers were instructed to wear distinctively torn clothes, they were supposed to let their hair uh, flow loose. And as they walked around in society, they needed to cry out at all times, unclean, unclean, so that no one would come near them. And so when we read that a leper came out to Jesus, imploring him, saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean, we should know that the disciples would have been looking on in horror. And even Mark's initial readers would have looked on in discomfort, wondering what's gonna happen. No one dealt with lepers. There was no medicine for leprosy. The priests didn't deal with leprosy except to identify its presence or its absence. It was accepted that leprosy would either heal on its own or that a person would die and that there was nothing to be done. In asking Jesus to cleanse him, the the leper saw something in Jesus. He was asking Jesus to do what was known to be impossible by human means. And no one saw what Jesus would do, no one saw it coming. Verse 41, moved with pity Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Not only does Jesus not turn away and avoid the leper, but he draws near and he touches him and he heals him. Anyone else in the world, had they touched this man with leprosy would have been made unclean, but that doesn't happen to Jesus. Jesus. Instead of becoming unclean due to the contagious leprosy, the leper is cleansed and healed by Jesus's contagious holiness. Here, we see the surpassing nature of the salvation that Jesus comes to bring. It comes against the expectations of his disciples. It comes against the expectations of the world. There's clearly something going on here with this man, Jesus, that is different from anything we've seen before. And what's interesting here is the deep irony about what happens as a result of this healing. From here, after he heals the leper and charges him to say nothing, the leper disregards this charge and talks about Jesus to everyone he can find. find. And as a result, Jesus can't enter into any places. He has to stay in the wilderness. And in this irony, we see the gospel. Jesus has traded places with the leper In the words of one commentator, Mark began this story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. At the end of the story, Jesus is outside in lonely places, as we're told. Jesus and the leper have traded places. Early in his ministry, Jesus is already an outsider in human society. Mark casts him in the role of the servant of the Lord who bears the iniquity of others and whose bearing of them causes him to be numbered with the transgressors. This is the story of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came to be numbered with the transgressors so that he might take our place. We see this here with the leper, this outcast who Jesus looks at and he touches and restores and he watches as the leper enters back into society and Jesus stays out. The more light Jesus brings into the world, the more the darkness hates him. And we see this all the way up to the cross as Jesus is preaching what is true. He's declaring the service that he is about to provide for the whole world. And he is watching them push him further and further and further outside the camp all the way up until the point on the cross when he's hanging there prepared to die. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In this first chapter of Mark, we see a foretaste of everything that is to come in Jesus's life and ministry. Jesus came to trade places with us, to secure salvation from sin and death, to restore us into right relationship with God and with one another, to give us, to raise us up and seat us with him in the heavenly places. Jesus came to give us all things and he did it at the cost of staying outside the camp of becoming an outcast in our place so that we could be welcomed in. It wasn't anything like the world expected. As we're gonna see repeatedly over and over again in his ministry, the fishermen miss it. The disciples miss it. Over and over again, they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, no, no, no you don't get it. You don't get it. We're, we have an opportunity to make things look better and this is great, it's gonna be awesome. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Success is not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. This brings me to the fifth and final observation. Rather than miracles and power being at the heart of Jesus's mission and the effects of what he came to do in the world, the primary thing at the heart of Jesus's mission is the formation of a fellowship. I'm going a little bit backwards in the story but I want to go back and consider just for a moment the implications of Jesus starting by gathering his disciples together into a world in which rugged individualism is the norm. Self-reliance is the way of the world. Jesus brings a message of fellowship and community. It goes all the way back to the garden where Jesus creates the first man and says it's not good for man to be alone, and he gives him a wife and forms the first human community. Today's hero in the world is the one put forward by rugged individualism, the one who lives his own truth, the one who conquers through authenticity, the one who lives out on the frontier and conquers, but this is not reality. When you get out to the frontier, you realize that the world is actually a harsh place and nature teaches you otherwise. The world which is marred by sin is a harsh place. Life on the frontier is harsh and full of complexity and in order to survive, we can't do it alone. When we engage with the real world, we see that we don't find ourselves in our own life. We find ourselves in being connected to those around us, to nature around us, nature itself, especially when we come into the wilderness has the effect of gathering us together. When we come to the wilderness, we see that it's not in times of plenty or ease, which are truly artificial in a world marred by sin, but instead by sitting in the mess and complexity of how things actually are and engaging with the reality of the real world around us, that we are brought to a place of real dependence on God. And real dependence of God is not something that we live on our own. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus begins by forming the church. Miraculous power has a vital role to play in the ministry of Jesus, as we see later on. Strategic ministry has a vital role to play in the ministry of Jesus, as we see later on. But everything that follows comes after what comes at the very heart of the Christian message and what Jesus came to leave behind him. A gathering of ordinary men, women, and children depending on him together. Sojourn, I pray that this is what the Lord might teach us in this wilderness season. That Jesus came with power and authority beyond measure. And the way that he chose to conquer all things was not in the way of the world, was not the way of rugged individualism, going out, going out on his own. Before he did his first mighty work, he gathered disciples together to teach them about the kingdom, and to eat meals with them. And so this is my prayer, that as a church we would lean into God together, that we would see through our community, our imperfect community as it is, the very design for which God called together people, and through which God is gonna bring victory and renewal and restoration to the whole world. Let me pray for us. God, Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, for this glimpse through the gospel of Mark at the beginnings of your ministry and through just these few themes that we see that you establish at the beginning of your ministry, Lord Jesus, and that will carry through to the end. Lord, in a moment in which deconstruction is the norm, when more and more things and ideas are being thrown at us, please help us to reconstruct in a way that outpaces the deconstruction that we're in the middle of. We're so grateful for the deconstruction that you come to offer in pulling us away from our individualism, in pulling us away from systems that cannot save us, in pulling us away from self-reliance. And I pray that Lord, in a moment of deconstruction, you would make clear the only foundation upon which our lives can truly be built, the only foundation upon which our community can be built, which is you. Help us to let go and to follow you. Place the hook in our cheek, Lord Jesus, and drag us to you if that's what we need. Help us to yearn and depend and look more and more for what you're doing in us and through us as the world around goes nuts, Help us not to be worried. Help us to remember that you have seen this before and you will carry us through it even now. Through the preaching of the word and sharing lots of meals with one another. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.